Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thanks, and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. If you're a regular listener to this show, you know that try as I might, I just can't always hide my Western theater bias. In Kentucky and Tennessee, we see armies not only fighting great battles, just as they did in the East, but we also see them maneuvering decisively, marching hundreds of miles, battling for objectives of strategic as well as symbolic importance. The West also gives us the clearest view of how the complex issues of slavery and secession work themselves out, as we'll discuss with our guest tonight. He is Professor Aaron Astor, author of Rebels on the Border, Civil War, Emancipation, and the Reconstruction of Kentucky and Missouri, and he's also the author of a forthcoming book on the war in Tennessee's Cumberland Plateau region. Join us for that conversation tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you as usual from the third floor of the Brewster Building here on campus of East Carolina University. It's a cold and almost snowy night in February 2015. In fact, the university was closed last night and early this morning, and we're closed again tomorrow until 11 a.m. with the threat of snow. It's been an interesting time here at ECU. But despite the weather, I'm still not speaking for the university, nor will my guests speak for any other institution. As always, we're on our own here at Civil War Talk Radio. The university can manage itself. It has been the busiest week ever, I think, in my tenure as department chair here at the Department of History of East Carolina. Uh, last week, all kinds of things were happening simultaneously. Last Wednesday, it was, uh, for example, I had my five-year leadership review, an important 
uh, event where people get to comment on me and, and I do a presentation and all this, made only slightly absurd by the fact that I've already told the dean I will be uh, turning over the reins to someone else at the end of the semester. So after five years, my leadership review will make my last month and two months the best ones ever, I guess. the idea of having to go through this review at the end of my term made no sense, but it's the policy, so we don't change the policy. We just went ahead and did it. And it actually was interesting, and hopefully my successor will have learned something from it. Also last week here at East Carolina University, uh, and now we get to a historical topic, We, the Board of Trustees of the university on Friday uh, voted to uh, take the residence hall named for Charles B. Aycock, a former governor of East Carolina University, and give the dorm building a different name and take the Aycock name and move it along with the names of other uh, historical figures here at ECU into a new uh, museum, which we don't yet have. They've given it the informal name Heritage Hall, and thus they have answered a growing campus controversy about Governor Aycock. I won't go into the details of his uh, record and why one might question whether he should represent a modern university or not. But more important, the the trustees came up with uh, a really forward-looking solution in not simply saying, yeah, we'll take the guy's name off or, yeah, we'll just leave the guy's name up, but rather doing what I, as a historian, love to hear about, Let's build ourselves a history exhibit. Let's create a place where we can talk about who uh, Charles Aycock was and who all the other building namesakes on campus were. I would guess no one in this university, and I include myself and my colleagues in the history department, could identify the people for whom all these buildings are named, uh, Jarvis, Brewster, uh, uh, Joyner, Wright, uh, and Mendenhall and, and so on. Who are these people? Most of us don't know some of them, and none of us know all of them. So now we're going to have a place where we can learn about our own history and acknowledge uh, good things and bad things that our, our predecessors did. And uh, as a historian, I couldn't be happier with the outcome. Uh, it may not have been what everybody wanted. The, the uh, people on each side wanted uh, a simple up or down decision but we got a sideways decision and it's a good one. So I'm quite, I'm beaming about our university's decision to do something uh, on behalf of deeper historical understanding instead of simple sloganeering. Uh, well done, trustees. If any of and I, I say it, I realize some of them might actually be listening to the show tonight. So uh, uh, while you're at it, could you send a few more uh, tenure track lines to the history department as also, and also some travel money for my colleagues so we can do our research. Uh, Thanks very much. Now we move forward to looking at this show and what's coming up in weeks ahead. You can always find out by going to www.impedimentsofwar.org where Mark Gaffney keeps us up to date on what's going on. You can buy books there for uh, from authors you've heard on the show. You can click on the Amazon button, and if you buy your books through there, it clicks through some money for the website, which is welcome. You can donate to the show, to the book fund. It's just a gift to me. It is not tax deductible. It is not 
something uh, you can well you can feel good about it uh, but there's no telling what I will do with the money I might buy a milkshake on the way home from work tonight uh, who knows what else the uh, forthcoming shows last week apologies to all uh, Dave Powell was unable to join us uh, I was very much looking forward to that I know many of you were and I'm happy to say that uh, Dave will be with us next week, March 4th, instead. So we will hear about the uh, Chickamauga campaign. He has produced the first of a three-volume set on the Chickamauga campaign. And volume one itself is uh, 700 pages, so this is this is the work on that campaign. And uh, I'm looking forward to having him with us to talk about it. After that, March 11th, no live show. It'll be spring break. I will be in Cancun or Daytona or somewhere in my mind. In reality, I'll be here in the office uh, creating papers or making the next fall, next spring schedule or something. After that, at the moment, no shows are officially lined up, but we've got a couple people lined up. Michael Stevenson, who was to have joined us, uh, had something come up and and won't be with us for a, a while. We will try to get him rescheduled. But some of the people you'll hear from uh, in March and April include Brian Jordan, uh, who has an excellent new book on Union veterans, John Fox, who has written about Stewart's ride around McClellan, uh, possibly just got an email today from uh, Julianne Mahegan. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. She's edited a book of Confederate memoirs and is going to be passing through the area, and I plan to get in touch with her, see if we can get her on the show talk about her uh, ancestor, I believe, and uh, other shows will follow. Suggestions are always welcome. Please let me know who you'd like to hear on the show. We'll be happy to get them set up, bring them in. Uh, We've covered Civil War beards for this decade. Don't suggest that again, but anything else, uh, go ahead and uh, let me know who you'd like to hear from and what we can talk about. We'll see what we can do. Well, tonight we are talking with Professor Aaron Astor. He is the author of Rebels on the Border and also working on a new book on the war in Tennessee. And we will find out more about uh, both old and new works from him. Uh, Professor Astor, are you there? Hello. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, uh, you and I haven't met uh, can officially uh, other than online, but I hope we can go by first names. Please call me Jerry. It's what everyone except my, my mother calls me. Okay, and please call me Aaron. Uh, we'll, we'll do. So, Aaron, since, since we haven't crossed paths on the, the Civil War Trail, uh, can you tell me a little bit about your day job, what you do when you're not on Civil War Talk Radio? Sure. Uh, I am, my official title is Associate Professor of History at Maryville College, uh, which we pronounce Maryville here. Uh, Maryville is in uh, East Tennessee, just uh, south of Knoxville. It's a small liberal arts college affiliated with the Presbyterian Church. It was actually founded almost 200 years ago uh, by Isaac Anderson, who was an early anti-slavery Presbyterian uh, minister as a seminary, um, so it has a rather interesting history of its own. I've been here uh, since 2007, did my graduate work at Northwestern University, uh, finished in uh, 2006, um, and uh, I uh, teach a whole range of U.S. history uh, courses mostly. It is being a small liberal arts college with uh, just around 1,200 students. We, um, you know, a smaller faculty 
tend to range rather widely in terms of our teaching, but it's a really uh, it's a really nice place to be. And I have to say, some of the weather that you're getting, um, we have er- we have been sending it to you. I think we're about due west of you in uh, Greenville, North Carolina. Um, so <clears throat> you can blame us for the bad well, weather. I, I- I will certainly do that. Are you in listening range of WDVX there? Absolutely. Uh, it's one of my favorite radio stations and favorite cultural phenomena on the face of the earth. Uh, WDVX is an incredible radio station out of Knoxville. And uh, we are blessed with some of the best um, radio, music radio of any place I've ever been. Not only is it WDVX, but University of Tennessee, which is only about 20 minutes away, um, has WUTK and uh, also an incredible... Um, college radio stations, sort of of the old school, really playing truly independent music. So we are uh, we have a lot of very good radio music options here. In addition to a nice um, uh, NPR station as well. So, well, well we're uh, I'm envious of that. With the miracle of the internet, I listen to WDVX all the mm-hmm. time. I like old time American music. Oh, and, it's great. Uh, it, it's it's one of the few places you can hear a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a beautiful part of the country where you are. Yeah, uh, we're right in the foothills of the Smoky Mountains. But um, you know, it's it's funny. The book that I've I've actually just I've actually finished it. It will be released in May. Uh, the book on the Cumberland Plateau, you know, is really the other side of the Great Valley from from where we are. Um, and so you know, it's I guess it's a little bit interesting. Why I would do a book on the Civil War on that side of the valley uh, and not over here? Um, but I can get into that later. But it's a very beautiful part of the country, no doubt about it. It is. I I was driving to uh, to an old time music festival, in fact, at Berea College uh, last mm-hmm. October, and uh, drove my my little car uh, across the mountains. I, I mm-hmm. avoided some of the interstates, and uh, man, it's a, it's some crazy driving. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you, you don't have a uh, an eye shot longer than 150 feet for for a very long time. Everything. Well, we have one of the windiest roads, the t- known as the Tail of the Dragon, which is actually in our county in Blunt County. It's one of the great motorcycle roads uh, mm. in the world, even. Um, and it's uh, yeah, the driving. If you if you like driving windy roads, is very very fun place to drive. Not a very fun place to drive on a snowy or icy night. No, I wouldn't night. want to do that. <laughs> Now, you said you were at uh, Northwestern. Uh, who did you work with there? Uh, yeah, I worked with uh, Stephanie McCurry and Stephen mm-hmm. Hahn. Um, they were my uh, dissertation advisors uh, before they went on to the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, I believe that was in 2003. Um, so I worked with uh, Stephanie McCurry was my dissertation advisor, and she was wonderful to work with. She's um, and. Um, but I, you know, I got to work with both of them. Um, there were some other people who sort of rotated in and out. Joseph Barton also was on my committee, um, and um, but you know, was able to work with Dylan Penningroth while I was there, um, and a few others. Uh, Kate Mazur came to Northwestern uh, when I was, I believe, my fourth or fifth year there. So it was a little further on for her to be on my committee, but I certainly would have would have been great. Uh, to have worked with her as well, so it was a it was a really great time to be there um, because of uh, you know the two of them are just incredible historians, um, and uh, but you know they moved on to to Penn and um, but I'm still you know keep very close uh, close touch with them. It, Stephanie McCurry is 
it's somebody I've not had on this show. I, it, it's at like the top of my invite list, and I, I have to get it. Yeah, make it a point to do that uh, sooner instead of later. So your uh, the the book Rebels on the Border was that your dissertation project? Yeah, it came out of my dissertation. That's correct. And in that book, and, and I do want to talk about your your forthcoming book, but I just want to sure. uh, touch on this first. Um, the, uh, uh, the the topic is the war in Kentucky and Missouri mm-hmm. generally, but but that's that's just where it is. Could you say a little bit about what uh, what's the argument there? What what you came up with? Yeah, the, what, what the book is really getting at is um, the notion of grassroots politics, uh, black and white grassroots politics in the central parts of Kentucky and Missouri, the bluegrass area around Lexington, and the area of central Missouri that was later called Little Dixie. Um, it had names before that, the Boone's Lick, um, around sort of Columbia, Boonville, um, sort of the central Missouri River Valley, right in the heart of the state. Uh, and I, what I was looking at was um, how it was that people at the grassroots level approached the question of union and slavery, of race and citizenship, of just you know the, the sort of central questions animating the country. And here, the, here these places were at the geographic and political center of the country. Um, and the you know. It's hard to really say that there was a majority opinion among the white population one way or another, but there was kind of a center of political opinion that I argued that was both pro-slavery and pro-union. And it was one that I don't think historians had really taken seriously enough before that, you know, we, um, I don't think historians had really come to grips with the implications of the fact that for not only those two uh, regions, but for much of the middle third of the country, um, people in the beginning of the war were quite strongly pro-slavery and pro-union. Now, in recent years, there's been a lot more books uh, that have explored this question because we know that it, 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 has, it bears heavily on the uh, timing of emancipation uh, during the war, you know, the, the question of Lincoln's relationship with the border states and all. Um, but here, trying to get in at how people were thinking about it on the ground level, and there were some very interesting arguments people were making about how, you know, the, the practical abolitionists, as many of them would say, were actually the South Carolina Confederates, that they were going to create this crazy war that was going to lure the North into the South and destroy the institution faster than anybody else could. But what happens in the middle of the war, and the reason I call the book Rebels on the Border, is because you have these two groups of people who rebel against that sort of pro-slavery or conservative unionist order. You have Confederates um, who are a sizable minority, and in some places, and some sort of sub parts of it, a majority uh, in these uh, in Central Kentucky and Central Missouri, and they are of course rebelling against the uh, pro-union part of conservative unionism. Uh, they believe that Lincoln is going to abolish slavery at some point. And um, then, of course, the other kinds of rebels are African Americans who are hearing, in many cases, their own masters speak of this pro-slavery union that had been there for 75 years. And they're saying, okay, we will support and eventually join the Union Army in very large numbers. Uh, for We will fight for the union, but we're going to fight for a very different kind of union 
than the one that um, you know politicians, white politicians, have been advocating in the beginning. And the result is chaos. I mean, the result is the social order breaks down, the slave system breaks down. This is a place that's exempt from the from the Emancipation Proclamation. It has the highest level of black military participation of any slave state. Um, Kentucky has something like 57 percent of military age black men join the Union Army. Missouri has about 39 percent, and um, it is uh, it really turns things upside down. Uh, and of course, you know, for African Americans, they're to a large extent. Um, you know, making their own destiny there without a whole lot of support uh, from the outside, uh, including into, and very importantly, into Reconstruction. What happens with the white population for many of these conservative unionists is that they become sort of disaffected by this turn towards uh, an anti-slavery uh, union. And some of them become what I call belated Confederates, meaning that they sort of adopt this kind of cultural memory of the Confederacy as being you know, the most appropriate cause, uh, course. Um, uh, Ann Marshall, who's at Mississippi State University, yes. um, has written an excellent book uh, tracing that whole uh, cultural phenomena really from really from the end of the war all the way up into the 20th century. I mean, her work and my work, I think, kind of, they kind of blend into each other chronologically I, nicely. Um, I, I think they do work well together. I'm going to step in just for a minute because we need to take a short break. Sure. We're going to talk more with our, our guest tonight, Aaron Astor. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. 
and welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking this evening with Aaron Astor. He's the author of Rebels on the Border, the Civil War, Emancipation, and Reconstruction. Do I have it all right? Yes, and the Reconstruction of Kentucky and Missouri, uh, which we talked a little bit about in our first segment, and uh, also is working on a forthcoming book, shortly forthcoming, on the war in the Cumberland Plateau area of Tennessee, which we'll uh, uh, get to just in a moment. Uh, Darren, you're comparing uh, your work or mentioning how your work dovetails with that of Ann Marshall, uh, mm-hmm. who has uh, been a guest on the show to talk about uh, uh, Kentucky as a, a Confederate state. Uh, as you point out, uh, you know Kentucky is considered the, the posthumous uh, member of the Confederacy. It's mm-hmm. become more more of a rebel state, uh, the stars and bars, bumper stickers, and uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, and my old right. Kentucky home, and, and all this uh, since the Civil War. And you, you argue then that this is largely rooted in disaffected pro-slavery unionists who are mm-hmm. turned away from the way the war becomes uh, eventually an anti-slavery war. Yeah, I would argue that, that, I mean, there are a lot of causes and elements. I mean, going back to E. Merton Coulter in the 1920s, this has been a sort of widely understood phenomena in Kentucky. But the mm-hmm. traditional view, uh, traditionally historians have said either that, well, Kentuckians were really Confederate, mostly Confederate, uh, but they were just sort of hoodwinked or, or didn't really support the Union idea all along, or that it was, and what Coulter argued was that it was the heavy-handed treatment of people like uh, General Burbridge, uh, lots of, uh, you know, sort of heavy crackdown against uh, guerrillas that got out of hand and that really turned people off uh, to the um, federal government uh, generally. And I would not, you know, minimize how angry people were in response to how Burbridge uh, dealt with the um, you know, uh, ongoing guerrilla war. But when it becomes even more apparent, actually, and as I've gotten to study Tennessee even more as a kind of a contrast, when you, when you look at uh, how much um, the emancipation question really, really turned people inside out, um, that there were a lot of people in Kentucky who really earnestly believed that Lincoln and that the Union cause was going to be separated from the the slave question as long as you know, that they could continue to do so. I mean, well into 1865, long after the war is over, there are these politicians in Kentucky. These were people who were staunch unionists throughout the war, like Garrett Davis, the senator from Bourbon County, Kentucky. They are launching lawsuits against the United States, uh, the General um, John P- uh, Palmer, uh, John P- um, Gen- uh, General Palmer, who was in charge uh, in uh, in the summer of 1865, suing him for taking, taking slaveholders' slaves away. Uh, you know, slavery is dead everywhere, so we think. And in Kentucky, they're saying, oh, no, it's not. Uh, it would not end until the final ratification of the 13th Amendment in December of 65. So there it, is it a just real a, great deal of resentment. It, I mean, it's astonishing to me how you know, myopic the slaveholders were. You know, Lincoln famously met with a delegation in the summer of 62, uh, you know, and tells them uh, the, the mere friction and abrasion of war are going to end right. this institution. So here's your chance to uh, sell your get slaves to the federal government, get some money out of it. Yeah. And they won't listen to them. They're they're still buying slaves. They're thinking we're going to be the only slaveholders left after the war. Right. We'll be we'll be sitting pretty. It, now let me ask about in Missouri. Uh, 
there's a book by Mark Geiger about mm-hmm. uh, the, the financial right. dealings there. I thought that was one of the most uh, novel and interesting books yes. on the war I've read in a long time. Yeah. And he argues that, that the, in Little Dixie, in the, the Confederate heart of the state, mm-hmm. the Confederate aristocracy was dispossessed of their property due to the, the financial goings on, mm-hmm. who mortgaged their land to who. And that, that's why, to this day, Missouri is not as Confederate as Kentucky because the Confederates lost everything. Does he have well, something there? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny. I was actually on a panel with him the first time, um, uh, the first time that uh, people outside, I guess, his dissertation committee had really heard his um, his argument. It was I was I was as enthralled by it as as, as others. Yeah. I think what's interesting about his argument is he's dealing with very specific people um, and the fate of them. Many of them do in fact leave. I think there's a, another whole story to be written actually about these ex Confederates who who are. Um, yeah, they lose all their property, as he says. They mm-hmm. invested in a check-cutting scheme that goes bad. Um, and many of them leave. They go to Texas. They yeah. go out west. Um, and I think it's interesting. It would be interesting to see what happens to all of them. But I would argue, though, that despite the, the fact that these very leading slaveholders, these leading property holders, sort of disappear, there are still plenty who are still there. And um, by the end of the 1860s, there, you know, Missouri has this homegrown radical Republican. Uh, government, much like Tennessee does. Um, <clears throat> it has this constitution that disfranchises all the Confederates, and uh, but also like in Tennessee, um, a lot of people by the late sixties are ready to sort of move on and and let's you know let's let everybody let's let everybody vote again. Missouri's Republican Party splits. You have the liberals versus the radicals, and <clears throat> when the uh, when the uh, uh, ex Confederates get the right to vote back. Uh, that central area of the state immediately becomes extremely pro-democratic. It becomes Little Dixie after the war. I mean, it's it's a uh, so you know that identity that memory is still it may not be quite as strong as Kentucky, but it's still very strong in that central part of the state. But Missouri is such a patchy state. There are so many um, there there are patches of settlement uh, that are partly dictated by topography, but partly it's just the, it's just the history of the place. With German settlements that seem to be sort of coiled in with, um, you know, heavy uh, hemp and tobacco plantation areas, along with uh, uh, settlers coming in from Ohio, and then you have the Ozarks not very far away, and then of course surrounding on both sides are two very fast-growing cities, St. Louis, and then after the war, Kansas City, and you have a really, really strange geographic mix of um, political settlement and culture. Um, that's much harder to really, you know, make any definitive characterizations of compared to Kentucky. So what about, uh, well, let's move forward to your current work um, yeah. on, on the Tennessee Plateau. What Sometimes uh, Wednesday night rolls around and I've, I've managed to look at the author's book and uh, usually I'm able to read the whole thing or, or a good part of it. Sometimes I have to skim bits of it and I feel a little abashed. Uh, tonight I can proudly say I haven't read your book because it's not out yet. That's right, uh, it's not. So, It'll be out May 25th. So, <laughs> uh, who's publishing it? It's actually with the History Press, and I and, and I, it's, I should tell you about why why I published with them and why I did publish this why I did this book because it's a it's kind of one of these these projects I sort of backed into but got more and more interested in as I was as I was working on it. Mm-hmm. 
I, um, I, I did a, uh, I wrote several articles for the New York Times uh, Disunion series, and mm-hmm. uh, one of them was called um, East Tennessee, The Switzerland of America, about a sort of a background on East Tennessee's divided loyalties. And I had a brief reference in there to Scott County, Tennessee, which is up on the Kentucky border, on the Cumberland Plateau. And it was a county that was so militantly pro-union that at one point it, its uh, county court actually voted to secede from Tennessee and form the free and independent state of Scott. Um, this uh. is a very small county, uh, rural county, but it was so strongly pro-union, um, that's how it had responded. Now, interestingly, there was another county on, on the south end of the plateau, Franklin County, which is where Sewanee is, um, that had a similar experience but the opposite direction. They were so impatient with Tennessee's pace of secession that at one point their sort of county leaders voted to secede and join Alabama unless or and until Tennessee itself seceded. So you had these strange pockets there, and I'd written about it, and I got an email from a, uh, an editor from um, the History Press asking if I'd be interested, because they do a lot of local, very local history, right. asking if I'd be interested in doing something on Scott County. And I said, well, I don't know that I want to write a, just a whole book on, as interesting as it is, write a whole book on Scott County. But then I thought to myself, I don't know that anybody's really done anything on the whole Cumberland Plateau, just as a region. And uh, I got in touch with some folks at Tennessee Tech University, who I know are really, really familiar with the region as a whole, and said, you know, is this something, has anybody really done this right or done this well? And they said, no, but, you know, kind of gave me the encouragement, said, go ahead with it. And then I thought, you know, is this the right format for it? And it has pictures and stuff. And I was like, yeah, actually, maybe it is a good thing to do, uh, you know, more of a popular local audience for it. And so uh, I took it on. and. And they had a fast uh, turnaround date, um, but that probably kept me motivated, and um, and so it's done, and it'll be out uh, it'll be out shortly. And it's been a, a lot of fun to work on because I like to go hiking out there, <laughs> quite mm. a bit. I take my my kids out there a lot, and uh, it's just it's one of those regions, and you know you've written about it yourself. It's one mm-hmm. of those regions that's really striking uh, geographically, and. Yes. Um, and it has a civil war story that is really, really remarkable. Well, the 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 two seceding counties is a fascinating premise. Yeah. Uh, let me, for our, our listeners who aren't uh, as inside the game as some of us, yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned the history press. It is a uh, a commercial press as opposed yeah. to an academic press. Right. It is. Um, it, it's not a, like a major trade press. They do a lot of local history works, right. I guess, on commission. I don't know how they structure things. But there was a time in our profession when it would have been unthinkable for a, an academic historian to write for such a, a yeah. publisher. Mm-hmm. And there was also a time in our profession when we were respected and widely read by the general public. And we kind of forfeited that by uh, yeah. holding up in the ivory tower. and. Yep. Now we've got things like you mentioned the uh, uh, the New York Times uh, uh, the, the sesquicentennial blog that's been going on, mm-hmm. where we, people contribute uh, generally. Where where and the comments to those articles are fascinating. The, the mm-hmm. public engages on a high level with that. So I I I wrote my second book for a, a trade press rather than an academic press intentionally. Uh, sounds like for the same reasons you did. Yeah. Uh, we need to get out and have our work heard by by people who are interested, people listening Absolutely. to this show. Absolutely. So, uh, so I, I say uh, good luck with this. I ho- hope it goes very well. So, uh, it was, it was 
in terms of format, I guess, again, since I'm not holding the book, I'm, I'm picturing right. most history press books do have a fair number of illustrations mm-hmm. uh, and, and are, but they're still referenced, they're still uh, uh, sure. know, serious history. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and this is, um, in fact, I'm actually doing, I mean, as I got into it, you know, I, I, I really started approaching it like a academic project in many ways, but mm-hmm. I, it, it but considering the press and considering, you know, the style of it, I really focused in terms of my writing on, you know, trying to make it, trying to make it as accessible uh, as possible, while at the same time exploring some themes that, you know, one of the themes I, I, I work with, is particularly in the first chapter, is uh, situating the Civil War story in some kind of geographic and even geologic um, context that, you know, thinking about the deep history of the earth, the deep history of the landscape and how it came to be shaped, and then how that, in fact, how that um, affected the way people who lived on the Cumberland Plateau, soldiers who marched uh, over it and through it and around it, um, you know, as anybody who has studied the Chickamauga and the Chattanooga campaigns knows that the landscape and the is of, of paramount importance in understanding how that how that um, how that campaign would unfold, and uh, you know that's probably the biggest and most you know, obvious example. The cover of the book, which you don't have, uh, is actually one of Walker's uh, paintings of Lookout Mountain. Um, not the famous um, not the famous Battle Above the Clouds painting, but it's another one that looks mm-hmm. east from Raccoon Mountain. And um, so, you know, the, all the battles around Chattanooga are clearly part of it. But there's also the Cumberland Gap part of it and um, the importance of, you know, this, this natural pathway that also is a man-made barrier. It's a line, mm-hmm. it's a div- division between states. And Kentucky is a union, you know, despite... Despite what happens after the war, as I said in, in the, my mm-hmm. first book, during the war it is first a neutral state and then a union state, and so it becomes essentially, you know, a battle, a point of um, of uh, political division, you know, between Kentucky and Tennessee. But of course, what also happens is that you have these division of loyalties within the region, and that you know Tennessee is famously it has you know, the three stars for the three grand divisions of East, Middle, and West. The Cumberland Plateau is right uh, straddles the line between the East and the Middle, and so somewhere it's sort of jagged along the plateau. And I think it does follow, to a large extent, some of the topography there. You have this division between the pro-Confederate and the pro-Union sentiments, and the areas where you have these social networks. And that's another thing I'm trying to get into with this book: these networks of people who trade with, or are akin to, or go to you know, church with, what have you, along certain coves and valleys uh, through the plateau, that helps them to sort of uh, orient themselves in terms of loyalty one way or another. And you enter guerrilla war, you enter Champ Ferguson and Tinker Dave Bate, I mean, Cal Brixie, some of the most, you know, the, the great butchers of the war outside of Missouri are all operating here on the Cumberland Plateau. So, so even though the press is, you know, it's, it's um, it's geared to reach reach a wide audience. I'm still trying to push some concepts here that are, um, you know, maybe maybe newer directions. I, I love the idea of the you said the deep history that you know, John McPhee meets Jim McPherson yeah. uh, kind of idea, looking at uh, geology, uh, yeah. the, the the terrain, not just in a surface tactical sense, but uh, the deeper layers of it. Uh, really, an interesting idea. So, uh, and when is the book scheduled to come out again? Uh, May twenty fifth. 
Okay, so we will have uh, make sure our listeners are out looking for that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's May 25th, um, and the title is The Civil War Along Tennessee's Cumberland Plateau. Well, that, that will work. We're going to take uh, our next break a little bit early now and step away and come back and talk more uh, about the war on the Cumberland Plateau. Our guest tonight is Aaron Astor. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking this evening with Aaron Astor, author of Rebels on the Border, about the Civil War in and Reconstruction in Missouri and Kentucky. Uh, also the author of a forthcoming book on the war in Tennessee's Cumberland Plateau, a uh, remarkable region, the, the Switzerland of America in one sense, as, as our author has described it, with a uh, uh, two different counties, each willing to secede. Uh, one because it was not Union enough, the other because it was not Confederate enough. Uh, so that book coming forth from the History Press uh, in May 2015, something uh, listeners you'll want to be looking for. Uh, Aaron, let me ask you uh, one uh, about the field of, of Civil War history generally. The idea of writing uh, for the history press and, and trying to reach a, a broader audience mm-hmm. uh, strikes me as one obvious direction that that uh, academic historians need to uh, take more seriously. Yeah. Uh, are there what other trends do you see in in the field these days? Well, certainly, uh, there's a lot more digital trends, social media trends. I mean, there's been a lot of 
Um, I mean, like, of course, the program that we're, we're on right now is uh, mm-hmm. uh, Civil War Talk Radio. You know, the Civil War is is a story that a lot of people have a lot of interest in. I think all of us who are academics um, are often floored by how much interest there is, deep, deep interest in the Civil War from people whose professions are nothing, are not history-related at all. Uh, I mean, when I, years ago, I had a, uh, an orthopedic surgeon who worked on my, and I, and I broke my leg, and he came in, and, and literally when he was, when I was waiting to be operated on, he asked me questions about Chickamauga and Chattanooga because he grew up around there. He was fat. He was also very interested in Daniel Walker Howe's, um, you know, views of the Whig Party. I couldn't believe how much this man was interested. It's like, mm. please operate on my leg. Um, but you know, it, it's it's there's you know, a my, lot my of favorite line. I, I I've just got to interrupt. My favorite line with that is when you meet a, a doctor at the cocktail party and they say yeah. oh yeah when i retire i'd like to teach a little history yeah. i always come back with yeah when i retire i'm going to take up a little surgery yeah you know, uh, that's exactly how i felt you know. <laughs> <laughs> like hey do your uh, job it's, it's harder than it really, looks. Literally. Yeah. but you know it's it's a, it's a great thing there's a lot of great i mean when we go to genealogical societies uh mm-hmm. meetings or civil war round tables or um i mean there is a great deal of interest in the civil war generally um, now the interest is, you know, it, it manifests in different ways to different audiences. Some have this have a very traditional military, uh, you know, sort of strategic military history approach. Some are more interested in the political history, some more in the social history, and different populations. Um, and you know, I, it's, it, it varies depending on who you're talking to and where you are. I find that it's it's it, the Civil War is so. Broad and so obviously a broad interest today. I mean, it's not it wasn't so obvious to everybody maybe 30 years ago that um, you know you can have an audience that's there that that generally expects to hear a more traditional military history, but then you can go into some of the other um, you know grassroots African American and white political history, and they'll still be interested. Um, and I've had that experience many times. So it's. It's a field that there is a great deal of interest in, uh, an educated lay audience, I guess is the best way to describe it, which is why I think the New York Times Disunion series was so successful, because there is, and why the comments were so and well-informed. There's just a lot of people who have a lot of interest in it. Now, one of the things that I really like to do, especially as an educator uh, teaching at a small liberal arts college, um, is I really try to connect this to people's local communities uh, and if relevant to their family history. I mean, my family wasn't here in the country during the Civil War, but a lot of my students, they were. Uh, their families were here in the Civil War. And it's uh, when it becomes relevant, when they, when they start to see connections between things that are already familiar with to them and this bigger Civil War story, they start to want to learn more. They start to see connections, and they start they start to see other connections that may not have they may not have realized, and so um, they start asking these other good questions. And it's a um, it's one of the uh, I just think that that as academics, I mean, we can do both. We can ask you know cutting edge, really really important interpretive questions about the meaning and experience of the Civil War for various groups, and reach out to a broad population. We just have to do it in a way. That um, you know that 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 touch that reaches different audiences. We have to be willing to use different uh, different um, kinds of media, different kinds of presentation, um, and uh, and engage people uh, with where uh, where they are. And I think we can you know 
keep this very interesting, complex story alive to you know, future generations. I, I think that's absolutely right. I, we are the envy of our colleagues in, in the yeah. profession in the amount of interest that we have, the audiences that will come and, and uh, yeah. share their knowledge and their interest in the Civil War. How about your students? Uh, are they... Uh, are, are, is it mostly a local or body, or do they draw from around? And how do they think about the war when you teach them? Well, they, um, you know, a good number of them come from East Tennessee, and uh, you know, a good number of them know that the the Civil War in East Tennessee was a little bit different than the rest of the South. Not all of them. There are many who think, well, East Tennessee is in in the Tennessee's in the South, therefore everybody was pro Confederate, and then they're a little bit surprised when they learn that that's not the case. Um, but but I think a lot of people realize there's something unique. I mean, that there's an Appalachian history and a Southern history that are not always the same thing. Um, and of course, there's a lot of students who don't come from, from the area um, and really have no idea about that kind of special special history. Um, but they'll often find it interesting. I mean, you know, I think anybody who teaches, anybody, anybody who's ever been a student, not to mention a teacher, knows that enthusiasm goes a very long way in the classroom. When you have an instructor who's very enthusiastic about a topic, uh, and who's able and who's able and willing to connect things to uh, to the students in ways that they'll find compelling um, and engaging with them? They're gonna, you know, it's gonna have an impact. And you know, that's I think what all of us try to do uh, in the classroom. And I'm just, obviously, it's not gonna work for everybody, but you know, I think it does for a lot. What about uh, other authors? Who who? Uh, this is always a, a tough question. Uh, mm-hmm. Who's your favorite? Who do you like to read? Uh, about the Civil War. Um, who do I like to read? Well, who do I not like to read about? <laughs> about that's, that's a good answer. Um, I mean, really, it's it, there. Are, there are so many. It, it's. I, I'm not trying to, you know, dodge, dodge the uh, the question here. But there's, there are so many books that ask, you know, questions in very interesting ways. Uh, some. I mean, take the environment for example. I mean, I look at what Megan Kate Nelson did in terms of destruction, the destruct, uh, in terms of uh, visions of destruction. What's so fascinating about? She, I mean, there was her, and there's a few other books recently that have been about you know, the effect on the land, which is something that I've been interested with this Cumberland Plateau thing because Cumberland Gap was totally denuded of its trees and everything, and it was so interesting to see <clears throat> how, in Megan Kate Nelson's case, I mean, how she had. Um, gotten into what that meant for people to be in amidst this sort of destructive landscape and, and the, the sort of language of it. And that was just, that was really, uh, really remarkable. Um, you know, in terms of military history, I mean, some people are, uh, I think Earl Hess, uh, he's so prolific and he's, uh, has done a nice job, I think, of, of laying out very clearly a lot of the story of the Civil War in the Western theater uh, that has, you know, and really helped to amplify its importance uh, as a whole, and I think that's been very helpful. Um, in, um, I mean, so it's it's there. There are so many, um, <laughs> so many great historians yeah. uh, in the in the field. Um, you know, it almost the, depends on sort of which angle I'm trying to get at um, in understanding. Let, and of course, you know, William Freeling's that. South versus the South. I still use that mm. in my class all the time, uh, a lot, because it, it takes so seriously the idea of many Souths and even many yes. Norths, for that matter. Yeah, when you were initially talking about the the pro-slavery, pro-union people, I was thinking of the Upper South that, that yeah. uh, Freeling describes. Mm-hmm. The uh, uh, frequently on the show, uh, I, 
a large number of the guests on the show who've written books are, uh, as you observed, are, are not academics or people who just are fascinated by the war and they've written a book as a hobby. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, on the show, a lot of people of my generation, uh, I was just a toddler during the centennial, but uh, uh, older older than you, and my cohort, almost all of us remember Bruce Catton's Centennial History of the Civil War right. as the book that got us started, the, the beautiful maps and the, uh, the illustrations as much as the text. And I'm wondering if, if any book has ever come along that, that the next generation of historians doesn't seem to have this quite the same one book that everybody remembers. Yeah. Is there a book you remember from childhood or from well, your first interest you, in the war? When I got into the field of history, when I got into the field of history, you know, as a very mm-hmm. serious pursuit, it was actually Reconstruction that pulled me in more ah. than was Civil War. And it was Eric. Okay. Fon- I mean, Eric Foner, I think, is probably the work, the the, the historian mm-hmm. that I'm most drawn to. But I I, has, I didn't automatically include him in the Civil War story because my initial uh, orientation to him was his his large book on Reconstruction. That was the book right. that got me into the whole the whole field. And it was it was it was uh, it was starting from there and trying to work a little bit backwards to understand how people. Uh, I mean, how people experienced this dramatic change at the at the ground level, but also how larger structural you know, political elements uh, affected it. That had a huge impact on me and, um, and, and how I approached the dissertation in the book. Um, when I was younger, um, I can't really think of any, any book in particular. I mean, I grew up in northern Virginia, so I grew up around a lot of, a lot of the Civil War. But what's interesting mm-hmm. is that while all these places are named after Civil War generals and, of course, all Confederate, um, mm-hmm. nobody, virtually nobody there's from there. There's no organic connection to it. So these people live on Beauregard Street or Jefferson Davis Highway, and nearly all of them have moved to Northern Virginia in the last 20 years. Whereas where I am now in East Tennessee, um, people have been here. A lot of the population has been here. Their family has for 200 years. There's an organic connection to the story, which is really makes it, I think, very compelling. Um, even though you don't have as many famous battlefields here uh, as you do up in Northern Virginia, there's a deeper connection to it and and that's i think pulls people into it more um more deeply here uh whereas up there it's a little bit more abstract it's it's uh you know it's it's something that yeah there's there's the manassas battlefield park and there's into let's go to a battlefield park but but it's not really oh this is you know this this happened on, on our farm and our property you know and um one of my favorite assignments I give uh, the students in Civil War class here at East Carolina is to bring in a piece of the war, yeah. and I, I don't give them any more instruction than that, and they sort of anguish about it. But then half of them immediately say, oh, I've got a letter from an ancestor. I've got a bullet. I've got a yeah. – if they have a sword or a musket, I say, just bring a picture. Don't bring a weapon on campus. <laughs> uh, but And then even the ones who don't, we get uh, the, the – you know, an exchange student from Australia says, well, I don't know. And then she thinks about it and brings in a story about Aborigine, Aboriginal politics in her country and how it compares right. to, to ours. But everyone has that piece. Uh, yeah. or so many people here in eastern Carolina do, and I'm sure eastern Tennessee is the same yep. way. That's uh, right. Uh, so, so they really they do get into it. 
They do. Well, they do. They just they, they don't. They, you know, I, I often think of my job as a teacher, as an instructor, as a historian. Really, is to connect the dots. I mean, you go talk mm-hmm. to genealogy groups. You talk to people who are who know all this detail about their own family, but they have no idea how it fits into a larger context. They don't understand why. Um, you know, somebody changed their name because of the war. Why somebody, um, you know, why uh, one brother went one way, one went another. Amy Merle Taylor's uh, first book on divided family in the Civil War is a big is is also a big hit with me um, and very relevant around here. It is a but the, the people have these stories that they have grown up hearing and never really knew how to make any kind of sense out of it. And so what I like to think of of what historians are doing, what I'm trying to do as a historian, and certainly with this Common Plateau book, is to try to weave all these pieces together into some kind of you know, meaningful, um, you know, meaningful picture so we can understand why groups of people may have behaved the way they did, all the while recognizing there are all these counter stories, there's all these individual exceptions, you know, that, you know, these are human beings that are making conscious choices that don't always follow a pattern. But, you know, it helps, I think, to sort of get into the mindset of people when you get into the ground level, you start looking at the place names, you start looking at where the creeks go, you start looking at where were the mills. These are rural agricultural society. They're very intimately aware of how the land is shaped much more than we are today. When you start looking there, you realize, oh, now I can get why they may have behaved the way they did. Well, it, it is a fascinating story, endlessly fascinating story, to, to talk about the people, uh, the land, and the connections of this. Uh, listeners to the show, you know this is the time when I tell you, uh, don't forget to get a copy of uh, our author's book tonight. And I do that when I've read the book and enjoyed it and think it's worth your time and uh, uh, that you'll enjoy it too. Tonight, having not seen the book, I'm going to go out on a limb and say I plan to get a copy of uh, The War in uh, the come, – tell me ex- the exact title. It's so called it, right. The Civil War Along Tennessee's Cumberland Plateau. The Civil the War Along Tennessee's Cumberland Plateau. A lot of it is about places like White County um, that are really more technically the Highland Rim, but, but, but it's so connected to the plateau. So um, we, we will get – well, that's our title. We're going to get that it's from the History Press. The author yes. is Aaron Astor. It's coming out in May 2015. Uh, listeners, be sure and get it. And Aaron, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Thanks for having me. And listeners, as always, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.